You're listening to Counterculture on RCR. Reality Check Radio. Welcome back. You are with Counterculture here on Reality Check Radio. I am Marie, and my guest this morning is creator and host of the Disaffected Podcast, Josh Slocum. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. I'm very excited to have you here. Josh and I, we, we kind of danced around each other in other communities that we in, so we know of each other, but this is the first proper, g'day, how are you, that we've yes. had. So it is very cool. Yes. I wanted to get Josh on for a very, very specific reason. Many of you may have heard the interview I did a few weeks back with Rebecca Hampton. And Rebecca is the mum who has a daughter who has transitioned. A lot of that transition was done without her knowledge and consent. Uh, it is a harrowing tale. If you haven't heard it, it is on my replays page. So do go back to realitycheck.radio and click on the replays and look for the interview with Rebecca Hampton. Now, in that interview, she was talking about uh, some of the influences that her daughter had had whilst at school and the people around her. And she just happened to mention those with cluster B personality disorders. Now, this was something that I was aware of, but most people are not. I wanted to talk to somebody who knows quite a bit about this because your podcast, Josh, looks at the world and particularly the cultural landscape in which we live in with specifically a cluster B lens in mind. So tell us a wee bit more about that. Yeah. Um, For those who don't know, probably best to define cluster B personality disorders first. Uh, Many people will not know that term. But those of you listening, you do know these people and you have met these people. You will recognize that as this conversation goes along. Uh, That's part of what uh, my friend and the other half of the show, the producer, uh, Kevin, want to do with the show is uh, is connect for people um, knowledge that they already have that they don't know that they have. So cluster B personality disorders are a type of mental illness, but they are not the kind of mental illness that comes to your mind when you generally hear the term mental illness, right? So when you hear that term, most of us think of things like major depression, chronic anxiety, whether it's generalized anxiety disorder or panic disorder. We might think of schizophrenia. We might think of manic depression, now today called bipolar disorder. These are different. There's some overlap, but they are separate conceptually from the concept of a personality disorder. This is broad in general. There are exceptions. You can challenge some of this, but generally, I think this is a helpful way to think about this. The kinds of mental illnesses that we think of Let's take depression and anxiety at clinical levels, not just I'm sad today, but really genuinely diagnosable, right? Many of us have known people who struggle with intermittent depression or major depressive disorder, uh, chronic anxiety, or flare-ups. And in a way, we think of this, we think of these conditions as sort of a dark cloud that occasionally comes over and covers over the person we really know, that friend that we really know. Yeah, Winston Churchill used to refer to it as his black dog would come to visit. Yes, the black dog, a black cloud, right. The important part of that is that we, whether whether we're entirely accurate when we do this or not is not the point. We recognize and we conceive of our friend who has this problem. You see, we know the real her and she's not really the real her or she's compromised when when this major depressive episode comes over her, right? Again, general... I can't I can't specifically rule out every every single uh, possible objection to that. Um, personality disorders are talking about something much more fundamental. They are talking they are what they say on the tin. They are personality disorders, right? They are saying that and and this is one of the reasons why among some populations, this is a very unpopular concept that provokes quite a bit of anger. Um, they are saying, yes, there's something fundamentally wrong with your personality. That is what they're saying, right? No, it's not pleasant. No one wants to hear it, yet it is true. Personality disorders are longstanding, strongly dysfunctional ways of processing your emotions, how your emotions affect your thoughts, They affect your relationships, your ability to maintain or even have relationships that are stable and non-abusive. 
they and generally speaking, the vast majority of people who can be said to have a personality disorder come from a background of actual trauma. I don't mean 2023 trauma where I didn't feel validated by my friends. I'm talking about child abuse, growing up in abuse, neglect, growing up in households where logic, rationality, and cause and effect are not present because there's a dictatorial or unstable father or mother. These early childhood experiences are found in the vast majority of backgrounds of people who end up diagnosed with these disorders. So what are they specifically? Ostensibly, so there's cluster A, cluster B, and cluster C in terms of personality disorders. And this is an American diagnostic scheme. I think internationally, uh, these would be called axis two disorders. I'm concentrating only on cluster B. In cluster B, there are ostensibly four. Borderline personality disorder, narcissistic personality disorder, histrionic personality disorder, and antisocial personality disorder. Antisocial is what listeners will recognize commonly as psychopathy or sociopathy. I no longer believe that many people fit neatly into only one of four diagnostic categories. I now believe there is a state of mind that we can accurately call cluster B, that you are personality disordered in the way that we label cluster B, but that many more people than not have symptoms from borderline. They may have a smattering from the narcissistic side. They may have some histrionic and they may have some uh, even if they're not actually a global full-on psychopath, they may have some secondary psychopathic or sociopathic traits. People are individuals and, and our minds are mix and match. Just to give a quick definition, borderline personality disorder is characterized by extreme emotional instability, going from elation to despair and rage within minutes, hours, or days. It is not bipolar. It is not manic depression. This is the most commonly confused and misdiagnosed pair of mental disorders. How do you tell the difference? Because a, a person with borderline, like I said, can go from elation to absolute suicidal despair very quickly. The way you tell the difference is, Marie, I know that you've, you've been in the medical field. And if I'm saying something that does not line up with what you think is correct, please push back and challenge me or you know let the audience know there's a disagreement there. Yeah, well, a lot of this is in broad breaststrokes. I'll just remind the audience. I mean, Josh isn't a clinical psychologist, you're no, not a I'm medical not. professional, but you're somebody who has worked and observed and read in this field. So these are broad brushstroke observations. Correct. So, Correct. and as you said, it's that knowledge, that innate knowledge that you may actually applying labels to things that you've been aware of, but you may not have necessarily been yes. able to put your finger on. So continue. So the extreme emotional instability in borderline, most, not all, most borderlines also struggle with an unstable or absent sense of identity. They may ask themselves, who am I? They may change their hair, their hobbies, their social group, their religion, many times over, trying to find some place that feels authentic to them. They are terrified of abandonment. They're afraid of being abandoned by loved ones, friends, and family. And unfortunately, Borderlines usually fulfill their abandonment fears by, they don't mean to do this necessarily, but they drive those very people they love, they drive them away because they are often intolerable, absolutely intolerable. Narcissistic personality disorder is pretty self-explanatory, but there are two major threads of that that I like to point out to people. Say that a person is narcissistic or may even rise to the level of a personality disorder. The first image that comes to mind is the grandiose buffoon. A Donald Trump, for example, the big obvious braggart, right? I'm better than everybody. My wife is the most beautiful. My car is the most powerful. Um, you know, I've betted the most women, da 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 da, or I, I'm the hottest supermodel. That's the easy to see. You, it's easy to see these people because they tell you, they tell you who they are. There's also the covert narcissist, sometimes also called the vulnerable narcissist. And these are people who are just as self-centered, have just as much of a feeling that they are special and entitled above the rest of humanity, but they present very differently to the world. And, and they are more dangerous because they are more subtle. They often present to the world as victims. They are eternal victims. They've been done wrong by their husbands, their wives, 
by the family court system. Every boss they've ever had was a bastard. Every time they lost their job, it was never their fault. It was that somebody was working against them, right? Um, so those are kind of the two phases of narcissism. Histrionic, it tends to, and, and in my view, histrionic is is pretty close with borderline and has a lot of overlap. Obviously, big emotions, often shallow emotions, they may be exaggerated. The affect of a histrionic is often emotionally exaggerated. The root of the word histrionic is like an actor. They come off like a stage performer. Uh, they're very often highly inappropriately sexual and flirtatious and seductive. And the antisocials, of course, are the sociopaths, the psychopaths, the people who we would describe as having no conscience at all, not, not just a compromised conscience, but really not having one, having no real empathy or care for whether their actions harm other people. Psychopath, sociopath, and antisocial is not a synonym for serial killer. This is a common misunderstanding. It is true that most serial killers can be diagnosed as psychopaths, but most psychopaths are not killers. They are still dangerous. People, before they know about this stuff, they may say to themselves, oh, well, thank goodness, I don't know any psychopaths. I don't know anybody who's been a serial killer or who murdered and tortured cats in their childhood. So uh, since I don't know any people who did those things, I don't know any sociopaths that I'm safe. No, that's not true. No, yeah, you just very likely have. Yeah, you just need to spend some time in the corporate world and trust me, you'll come across one or two. Yes, the corporate world. And and the thesis of disaffected, and then I'll shut up and let you ask me some questions, Marie. (laughs) Um, Because I come from a background, I have a family that is shot through with cluster B personality disorders. My childhood was uh, one of severe abuse and neglect, along with my brother and sister. I was weaned on this, right? So I've known it my whole life before I even knew how to describe it. The show, Disaffected, our thesis is that if you, listener in Radioland, if you have a concept in your head of the abusive husband or the abusive mother, you have a concept in your mind of the cluster B personality. Because most of the time, again, never 100%, but most of the time, those people that you would describe as a domestic abuser or a child abuser are people with cluster B personality disorders. So you do know these people. You've run across them. The first thing that came out of that that I learnt new this time was around the, um, the abuse of relationships. Now, again, the same day that I had Rebecca on, I also had a woman on called Gloria Masters, and she is a sexual child abuse advocate and activist. And she was still talking about New Zealand's woeful history in child abuse. One in three girls, one in four boys sexually abused before the time that they're 16. Do you find that a credible statistic? Yeah, this has come from, she's got That's this That's extraordinary. The and actually, and I know that this is credible because when Mr. Marie, he trained in medicine originally, and those numbers, the, particularly the one in three for women, he said that was the number that they were trained with back 30 years ago. So that those numbers have been pretty static. It's terrifying. And so when you look at those statistics, as you're saying, it's a feeder, isn't it? So if you've got that number of people that have been harmed and affected, a percentage of those will potentially go on to develop one of these personality disorders. Yes. So that then creates in itself a level of dysfunction. So one of the questions that I have is where do these personality disorders often, or people with these disorders, they often will cluster, bees will cluster together. So where, as a real-world example, would you potentially run into a gaggle of these en masse? Or where would people, if they're thinking, mm, how do I recognize this in my real life? What are some of those examples potentially that you could see that they would identify quite readily? Right. The glib joke answer is just open your door and walk out onto the street. It's only partially a joke because it's it's my belief that not only today in the Western world, I do believe that there is a greater numerical percentage of the population with these disorders than we have ever seen before. So I think there is actually clinically more of them per capita than there used to be. But I also believe that cluster B values have become normalized and put into the mainstream. So the thesis of our show is that domestic abuse, what we thought of as domestic abuse, is now public and feral. We Westerners are in a domestically abusive relationship with our government and our media. 
And yes, I am saying that the people at the top, uh, of course, I'm not actually able to diagnose. I don't have the credentials that allow me to give an official diagnosis. So when I say these things, this is not an act of diagnosis. What I say is not going into anyone's medical chart. It's not affecting the course of their treatment. That's an objection that I want to get in front of. It's my strong belief that we lay people, we ordinary humans, we are allowed to notice things about people and we are allowed to use labels. But for example, and again, of course, this is my opinion. I think your until recently prime minister, Jacinda Ardern, is a perfect example of, of somebody with a, an apparent cluster B personality disorder, an authoritarian, dictatorial liar. Liar. I think that it chilled me. It chilled me to watch her press conference when she said, we will be your sole source of truth. That itself, that right there is a huge bing, 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 bing red flag. The cluster B mind, which is often the authoritarian mind, the controlling narcissistic mind, wants to create a world and wants you to agree to the false world that they've created, the false beliefs, the false beliefs about who they are. We often talk about narcissists wearing a social mask. Uh, somebody like Ardern may present herself as a mother of the nation, right? She's trying to care for people. She wants to make sure that people don't get sick. No, she doesn't. No, she doesn't. She wants to control people. Same thing with in, in the United States. Joe Biden, obvious example. Donald Trump, again, my opinion. Yep, I do believe Donald Trump is a clinical narcissist. But the mistake that I made about him was, uh, well, first of all, I think that most, almost all people who get to a level of power, like the prime minister of New Zealand or the president of the United States, almost all of them are personality disordered. In our system, you have to be a clinical narcissist first to have the drive necessary to achieve that level of power, but then to stay there and work within that system. So I think all of them are dangerous, but some are more dangerous than others. Barack Obama, mm. I was not able to see this when I was a leftist. I'm no longer a leftist. But Barack Obama, for me, is a quintessential example of the covert or cerebral narcissist. He's unlike Donald Trump in his affect. He's smooth. He's highly educated. His words are polished and he has an urbane manner. Yeah. I think Jacinda would have loved to, I think she was potentially trying to model herself off the Obama image. And yeah. that mask was very, very, very well positioned. But once things started, that mask started coming off. And I think for many New Zealanders, that mask started coming off in an interview that she did at the time that they bought out the digital passport system for the vaccine certificates. And in interview, the interviewer said, oh, in a sense, you may not see this this way, but are you not creating two classes of people? And she just went, yep, yep, yep that's exactly what it is. And yeah, yeah, the mask slips. The yep. mask just slipped and then it came back on again. Uh-huh. And you don't have to look to famous people to see this. There is no better demonstration of the cluster B mind than those who are who we would describe as woke. Mm. The, so let's the, talk about that group. So in that group, it does make me wonder that these cluster B personality disorders have filtered. There is a group of them that have filtered into academia, gathered knowledge, and then taken that fatal com combination of both knowledge and strong personalities out into the wider world. So how do you see those clustering within that group? So one of the questions that I had was, if you look at feminism, often when cluster Bs get involved, you have this complete 180, right? So in feminism, you had you know traditional third wave feminists, radical feminists, or revolutionary feminists. And now all of a sudden you have these fourth wave feminists and these two groups are now opposed from each other over the transgender and gender issues. So they're completely opposite. You have the old civil rights movement versus what is now BLM, complete opposite sides, I believe, yes. of an ideological spectrum. Um, classic liberals versus hardcore progressives. Where does the cluster B element, do you think, fit within those opposites? Generally, the cluster Bs are going to congregate where there is the most power to be gained and deployed. So this will change over time and with context. 
there's a there's a guy in the in the states called Bill Eddy who runs an organization called the High Conflict Institute, and that's a an organization that consults with employers about what he calls high conflict employees. So it's an it's basically domestic abuse in the workplace, right? And Bill's great line that I use all the time is with a cluster B, the issue is never the issue. What does that mean? Feminism is not what's driving the cluster B feminist. Trans liberation is not what's driving the trans activist. Equality of the races and fair treatment of Black people is not what's driving the cluster B BLM person. Power and self-aggrandizement is what is driving them. Tomorrow, they may change their political opinions 180 degrees and renounce everything they said yesterday or last year. They are still the same power-hungry narcissist. So it is not issue specific. The issue is merely a vehicle. It's it's literally, if you want to take the analogy, the issue is just the car they're driving to get to the destination. It doesn't matter if the rental car is a Kia or a Ford SUV or a Holden. It does not matter. It's just whatever will get them there at the moment. Today, in our era in the West, it is the left side of the political spectrum, the hard progressive woke left uh, where you find most of it. Unfortunately, and this is this is why I think we have a much bigger problem, it's not the fringe anymore. When I started talking about this on Disaffected two and a half years ago, I, I frequently said we're in an abusive relationship with the social justice left. I no longer say that. I say that we are in an abusive relationship with the mainstream left because it has infected the entire mainstream left. That does not mean that everybody who describes herself as a liberal or a classical liberal is part of that. I am not making that claim. So please, listeners, don't get angry about that because mm. I'm not saying that. What I am saying, though, is that the cluster B mores and value system does, in fact, structure the mainstream left. Yes, mm. that's your party right now. We've got a situation here, too, because, I mean, I know that this um, there are divisions in the United States democratically around this. And we have a similar situation here where I was talking to someone over the weekend and they said to me they'd always traditionally been a Labour Party, which is our version of the Democratic Democrats or Green voters. So, you know, very much on the socialist side of the canon. And they said I, they felt left behind yes. politically. And that's just it. The Over Overton window has shunted so seismically left in such yes. a small space of time that a lot of what I call those people in the centre, even whether you be centre-left or centre-right, all of a sudden politically are finding themselves in this really crazy place, the centre-right people who would often swing either side of that fence, depending on mm -hmm. policy and, and personality, yeah. all of a sudden are finding themselves called alt-right, white supremacist, fascist um, Nazis, yes. and yes. even those on the centre-left are now applied with labels that they're thinking, what, you know? Yes. Uh, so how, yeah, how do they combat, I mean, how do you combat that? Yeah, what you, I want to highlight a couple of things you just said because they illustrate very important dynamics for people to recognise. One is the narcissistic reversal. When I say that phrase, I'm talking about turning the truth around. It's 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 looking at an actual victim and calling that victim the perpetrator and then being the perpetrator, being the bad person who, who actively harms others and taking the identity of the victim. It's a reversal. It's it's turning black to white. Yes to no. Our society is nothing but reversals right now. Right. We we call the chemical and then physical castration of minor children. We call that gender affirming care. That is a narcissistic reversal. I'm going to give you a scripture. And I'm not even a believer. Isaiah 520, woe unto him who substitutes dark for light and bitter for sweet. Mm. That's what's going on. Uh, number two, the way that this gets, and I think this is the way that it has co-opted the left. Today's cluster Bs, today's narcissists and borderlines and histrionics and grifting sociopaths have figured out that there is a highly paid social living to be made by presenting yourself falsely as a victim. They have correctly noticed that we pay big social salary to victims. This is one of our cultural problems. We have elevated the victim to the status of an angelic creature who can never do wrong, who is never at fault, who has no agency, and every bad thing that happens to him is the result of an outside force impinging on him, and he didn't do nothing, never, right?
Mm -hmm. Um, This is an infantile view of humanity. It's not true. It's never been true, but it is what we tend to believe culturally. So these people will often disguise themselves as victims when they are anything but. Let me give an analogy. Let me give a direct analogy between domestic abuse at home and what we see in society. And I'm going to use my family as an example. And this is to illustrate the point that even though the majority of people do not have cluster B personality disorders, that does not matter. A strong minority who do is enough to turn an entire segment of the population into a cult-like, domestic abuse-like population. So what's happening is my guess, and I can only speculate and guess, and I do I do know and I acknowledge that what that my speculation is at odds with the medical journal's statistics because I believe that their statistics are wrong. My guess is that about 10% of the population today probably does fully qualify for a cluster B personality disorder. I do not believe the journals that claim the rate of borderline is 1% to 2%. I do not believe the ones that say that narcissism is only 2%. That may have been true 50 years ago. I do not believe it is true now. But still, we're talking 10%, not the full half of the population. So what do you mean, Josh? That's fine. We can just ignore the 10%. No, we can't. In the domestically abusive family, the parents and the children play roles. And some of the words we use for those roles are with the children, the scapegoat, the golden child, or the runner. And in my family, we had all three. There are three of us children. I was the golden child to my mother. My mother, best approximation, she's severely disordered, equally with borderline and narcissistic traits. If people want to imagine, and these are people of a certain age, we'll get these references. I'm getting older now, and I realize my references are are not as useful as they used to be. Those of you who have seen two movies, Mommy Dearest, the biographical pick about um, American actress Joan Crawford and her daughter, Christina, or the 1976 horror movie, Carrie, about the girl with a religious fanatic mother who had telekinetic powers. My mother is a combination of Joan Crawford and Margaret White, the mother, in those two movies. So that that is the kind of person that my mother was. In our family, I was the golden child. I'm the eldest. In some ways, my mother favored me over my brothers and sisters. She was extraordinarily abusive to me and exploitative. But in some ways, I could be the favored child. My sister was the scapegoat. She could never do anything right. Everything she did was not only wrong, but was calculated to hurt my mother, right? She's talking about a little girl here, right? Mm. My brother was the runner. My brother did not experience the direct physical violence and the emotional violence as directly as my sister and I did, but he witnessed it as a small child the entire time growing up. And he ended up running away from home as a teenager. Just as children occupy these roles, so do we adults occupy them in the cluster B society. Take the Democratic Party in the United States. I'm not saying that fully half the country or a third of the country is 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 a clinical narcissist. What I'm saying is even those who are not are playing a role. They're being the golden child, they're being the scapegoat, or they're being what is called a flying monkey. And that is a reference to the Wizard of Oz. The Wicked Witch of the West had an army of winged monkeys. She would send the monkeys out to do her dirty work so she didn't have to do it herself. So I, for example, was a flying monkey for my mother. I ran interference for my mother. I would negotiate with my mother's landlords when when she was going to be kicked out for for rent not being. I enabled my mother. I didn't understand what I was doing while I was doing it, but that's what I was doing. I was a flying monkey. There are a lot of flying monkeys out there in the liberal Democrat, the leftist parties right now who don't realize that that's the role they're playing. Other ways that it can get people is a lot of adults have a very hard time accepting something real about human nature. The thing they don't want to accept is that there are people who are not good at their core and they are not salvageable. They are not helpable. They cannot be loved back to health and they do mean to hurt you. In a word, there are bad people. This distresses many leftists because, and and I say this, I am a former leftist. Okay. So I know this mindset. I'm not being insulting. I no longer agree with it, but I do understand it from experience. We want to believe that every person, 
everyone's good underneath it. You just have to find the good. Bullshit. Mm. Not true. No, I've been talking a lot about in recent weeks what I call weaponized kindness. I truly believe that Jacinda weaponized that part of good people's human nature. Yes. And created what an inadvertently those flying monkeys that you talked about. And what I wrote down while you were saying all of that is the pandemic. I mean, the pandemic and the measures that went along with the pandemic, particularly in countries like ours, provided in a way a perfect petri dish for those personality disorders to take control, yes. did it not? Yes, it did. It It's pitch perfect, absolutely perfect. And I'm sorry to say that our populations failed the test miserably. We didn't just make some mistakes. We swallowed it all. The past three years have fundamentally changed my view of other humans. And I don't believe my view is going to go back to where it was before. I am much more afraid of people and much less. I've always been distrustful. I am extraordinarily distrustful now. It takes a lot for me to actually trust someone to get close enough to me to have any effect on my life or my prosperity. And I believe that I am right to be that way because I looked around at my countrymen and all over our country, state governors flagrantly, literally violated our constitution, our fundamental legal principles, and nobody cared. Very few cared. Most people went along with it. I'll give you an example. I live in the state of Vermont, which is in a part of the states called New England. It's Bernie Sanders country. Yes, but but historically, the mm. the oldest part of very traditional, very yes, it's, it's, it's where colonial. the pilgrims landed, right? Yeah. It's it's old New England, it's it's Salem witchcraft. It's it's uh, you know the Constitutional Convention, da 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 da, all this stuff. Well, now I realize that took place in Pennsylvania, which is not part of New England. Our governor, Phil Scott, nominally a Republican, which in in the United States is supposed to mean conservative or right wing issued, like many other state governors, absolutely illegal executive orders governing my behavior as an adult. So one example of this was he issued an executive order, which then had the force of law, uh, that said it was illegal for me to walk outside with any other person who was not a member of my physical household. If I wanted to exercise, I was not allowed to walk with my neighbor. I could only walk with the people who lived in my house. How extraordinary is that? Mm. Really, I mean, and if 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 anyone listening to this, if that did not give you a jolt in your stomach, I'd like you to step back and say it to yourself again. Really think about that. When was the last time you as an adult were ever instructed that way by another adult? Never. This is something that a kindergarten teacher can make a kindergarten child do. It is wholly inappropriate for an adult. Not only is it inappropriate and insulting, it's it's illegal. Our governors do not have the power. Our constitution, this fundamentally protects our not only our freedom of speech, the burden of proof and the onus of proof is on the government in the United States, not the citizen. We citizens have presumptive a priori rights and freedoms. They come prior to government. We don't have to ask the government for these rights. We have them. It is the government has to meet an extraordinarily high burden to prove that they have the moral and legal right to restrict our rights that we are, as our founding documents say, endowed by our creator. Interpret that however you want. Natural rights. So, I mean, there's just no controversy. There's no controversy at all that that executive order and, and orders like it were stunningly illegal. And Marie, I looked around at everybody around me on the streets, and I saw people just going along and obeying and saying, yes, daddy, yes, sir, Mr. Governor, sir. Yeah, we had exactly that here. The, the level of compliance stunned me. Yeah, we're, we were abused children. We reacted exactly as abused children do. Don't talk back. He'll get angry and he'll hit us. Keep your head down, do what you're told, and just get through it. That's what happened to us adults. And we did it. This is why I say we failed. So when you take the pandemic, and let's, from a macro perspective, and you look at the pandemic and the populations, so we were essentially in, a, in an abusive relationship with our governments. 
yep. for a period of time. How then do a do we recover from that, and what are the long lasting <coughs> excuse me long lasting ill effects of that over a society as a whole? Because certainly, from my perspective, the social contract with the government is irreparably damaged. It's my, going to. T- I share your view. Yeah, it's going to take a lot for me to to get that trust back if it ever comes back. So, how as a society do we move forward from this time? Uh, we have to do some very fundamental reordering of our thought process. We have to go to the very core, the very, the unspoken, unarticulated fundamental beliefs that are inside of us that we, that don't even rise to the conscious level. We have to examine them. I think, I don't think we're going to do it. I'm sorry to tell you that I don't think this is going to get better. Mm, But but would certainly not in our generation though. No, mm-hmm. I don't think you and I are going to live to see a major change here. I think it's going, yeah. in fact, to, to get worse. Yeah. Um, I hope that I'm wrong, but no, I do not believe that we're going to get through this unscathed. Mm. I think we're too broken. This may be inevitable. To extend the analogy from the personal domestic abuse to the public again, in order for me to see my mother for the fundamentally abusive and bad person that she is, I lied to myself my whole life. You know, I couldn't, I couldn't face the truth because if I faced the truth, I would have to, and I did eventually face the truth, but what I was avoiding were things like the knowledge that my mother, in fact, does not love her children. She's not capable of it. She doesn't have a mind that's capable of that. She's that broken. And she's not, you know, she's not 1% of the population. There are plenty of people like this. These are foundationally difficult things. They are truths that nobody ever wants to know. But it was necessary for me to know that. There was a crisis point seven years ago that was so emotionally compromising that I considered checking myself into psychiatric inpatient care. My alcoholism had gotten out of control. My finances were in severe jeopardy because of actions that my mother had taken. And I foolishly had embroiled my fortune with her fortune. So, you know, I made some very bad decisions. The crisis was so bad that I completely broke. I had what people call a nervous breakdown. My entire worldview was shattered. My entire emotional equilibrium was taken away from me. I have never felt more suffering in my life. And it was necessary because it woke me up and it allowed me, it's very, very painful, but people need to be broken. They need to I'm not saying this with relish. I'm not, I'm not rubbing my hands with glee about this. But for, for a people, a person or a people to fundamentally re-examine what they think the world is and how they relate to it, they have to be put up against the wall and feel a fear like they've never felt before. They have to feel like everything hinges on, on me being able to figure out a different way. And so while I do not lightly wish emotional suffering on people, I do wish sufficient suffering and rumination for people to make a clean break and to wake up and to take control. What we have to do is recognize the reality of human nature, recognize that these people we're talking about are real and they are in charge. Number two, we have to recognize that we have been enabling them as a society. And many of us as individuals, we're enabling our cluster B family members. Many of us are enabling our parents. Those of us who are on the left side of the aisle, the vast majority of people have been either actively enabling this woke nonsense, or they are tacitly enabling it because they will not say no. They will not object in public. Like, for example, I know people who are liberal leftist people who are just as horrified as I am at the idea of sex change surgeries being performed on minors, but they say it to me in a whisper when we're talking. I don't respect that. I don't respect a person who does that. So if you are a person who will only say this as a whisper, you are failing. You have a moral duty to do better. I'm sorry. I know that sounds stentorian and it almost sounds woke, but this is not a game. Mm. It's not a game and it's not good enough for Mm. you to keep your head down. I talk about courageous conversations all the time because sometimes a single conversation is the spark that's required in order to light a fire. And courageous conversations can be with your neighbour across the fence. So when you talked about the, the lockdowns that you had in your state, when we first had them here, 
I was appalled. And we had Dear, dear Leader is the nickname that <laughs> my, uh, my co-host that comes on short, he calls her Dear Leader, Dear Leader. So Dear Leader came on and she said that you can go out and ex- exercise, but don't talk to your neighbours that isolation, command and control. Well, I just thought that that was absolute bullshit, essentially, my husband and I. So we have dogs, and so dog walking was an approved activity. So we would go out dog walking, and we live in a neighbourhood. We've been in this neighbourhood for many years. We knew lots of our neighbours to say hello to, but you don't necessarily know with some of them. You don't have deep conversations with them. You know who they are and maybe what they do and where they live. There was a lot of dogs. There were a lot of dogs that got a lot of walking around yeah. um, New Zealand during the first lockdown of 2020, including ours. So we were out with the dogs. We thought, back of us, you know, we're going to talk to our neighbours. So you'd be standing back in the footpath and you'd see these six feet, two metre social distance conversations across fences and things. That's when we actually discovered that I lived in a street of freaking rebels. Nice. Of a similar mindset, and we would never have found that out by living our unless you were lives. courageous enough to risk have that conversation it up. exactly. And so, when um, the second lockdown rolled around, we were vastly more prepared. And then, when the cyclone blew through here in February, that little network of courageous little free thinkers that we have in this hood, we were all able to coalesce and come together and help other neighbours out. But also we all knew that we could rely on each other for certain resources because we'd already been shut out of society once and not able to do various things. So we had the resources to be able to do that. And those personality disorders, those people that are in control and command, that's the last thing that they want. And it's interesting what you were saying in terms of something drastic to happen in order to break people out of it. And I call it comfort. I think people have become exceptionally comfortable in their, whether it be their social comfort and their status or their financial comfort and their status. And it's actually having that worldview shake that cage, give it a really good, jolly good rattle that you actually realise, because we haven't, you and I, it's our grandparents that lived through those world wars. That's right. That's right. We are so comfortable. In the West, of course, I know the American experience much more than I know the experience in other countries, but we Western countries share a lot of similarities, right? We're not that different, you know? In America, you were the, the colony last... that got you were the colony that got away, Josh. Yeah, I know. We, we were the runners, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, but but yeah, since the 1950s, our lives have been so cushy, comparatively speaking. Even our poor today, our poor today are not what anyone would have called poor um before the modern era. How can you be poor and have an iPhone? How can you be poor and never miss a meal? How can you be poor and have a refrigerator, a television, a PC, right? Mm. Our our Overton window of what quality of life is has become so distorted. We have not been challenged. The last generation in America that was truly challenged was the generation of young adults who were in World War II, both the mainly men who went to fight and the women who kept the country running and the factories ticking over and their families fed here at the home front. I've never experienced anything like that. And 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 America of the participants in World War II got off the easiest. There was no fighting on our shores. We had the attack on Pearl Harbor, but we did not have the blitz that London did. We did not have the Nazis marching through like France did, right? We still had an easy, cushy time comparatively. I want to give the listeners a, a concept and an acronym that I hope will stick in their heads. Uh, it's a really important one. Instead of thinking, what is a list of specific actions I can take to push back? Think not about specifics, but think about a principle that animates your action. Say no. No. Just no. Not additional words, not and because no, just no. And then shut your mouth and let them react. Well, no. No, I will not obey you. I'm not negotiating with you. I'm not requesting your permission. I am instructing you. I am telling you that I am an adult and you have no power over me. Good day. And then close the door, 
shove that person out of your office, break contact with them. Do not justify, argue, defend, or explain. Jade, justify, argue, defend, explain. This is an acronym and a set of concepts in domestic abuse recovery work. We tend to jade, especially when we are used to being in a narcissistically abusive relationship. We want to explain. We want to justify. We want to show to our tormentor that we are a reasonable person, that we did think it through, that we have valid reasons for why we're going to do this. None of that matters. They don't care. They don't care. And also, we don't owe anybody shit. We are adults. You don't owe any explanations for saying, no, no, I will not obey your edict not to talk to my neighbor. And I'm not even going to tell you why I won't obey it. Because you crossed a line even suggesting that you had the right to tell me that. You are the one who committed a legal and social sin, not me. No. Say no. Find ways to say no to people who push your boundaries illegitimately in your personal life. Say no to your politicians. You can think of a million ways to say no, but that's the concept I'd like people to take with Mm. them. And that's where the weaponized kindness comes in, because when you've been groomed endlessly, that kindness is the currency that the society must run on and that your deportment must run on, and it comes down upon high, all of a sudden no becomes unkind. Yes, yes, that that's the thing. And and what is called kindness, this again is a narcissistic reversal, bitter for sweet, light for dark, black for white. Kindness is abuse in modern terms. The demand to be kind. We're not being told to be kind. That's the word they're using. We're told to ignore lies, never point out inconsistencies, lie to your friends and loved ones and tell them that you believe that there are sex that they manifestly are not. It's kind to flatter delusions. That's not kind. That's not love. That's not love and it's not kindness. It is enabling self-destructive behavior and it's enabling controlling behavior on the part of other people who wish to control people that they don't have a right to control. Marie, you are so right. And don't think I don't feel these emotions myself. I do because I say no a lot more than, than the average person does, but I still get those twinges. Am I overreacting? Am I just being defiant rather than, right? Mm. And, and yeah, sometimes I am overreacting. Mostly not, though. Mm. Not, not today. We should not have an emotional twinge when we say no. You are right, Marie, that we have been groomed into that. That's an abuse tactic. One of the aspects of social comfort was the thing that I found really amazing is that the level of compliance and nastiness that people that would be most close to you, the people that you thought you knew really well, all of a sudden would do a 180 degree turn in order to maintain their social acceptance within a structure during the pandemic. And that for me was a real tipping point. We've all seen the, th- the whole mean girl high school sort of aspect and you, you see those things playing out amongst teenagers. I've got teenage sons. I see this stuff yep. play out all the time. But to see it on a national stage, a societal stage, perpetrated by those that are there, that we have elected, that we have placed in a position of authority to help guide us, to give us a free, fair and open society, to then put measures in place that deliberately go to divide us, particularly if you do not comply, I just found horrifying and it stunned me the number of people that didn't even blink an eye and did the most truly, truly despicable things in order to comply and fit within a social milieu or not lose face in that period of time. That scared me. That was a lesson. I never predicted that I would, I did not know that this was possible. I didn't, I didn't know this about the people that I discovered it about. I never predicted that I'd find it out. It was a shock to me. It was one of those face against the wall moments. And it's going to be different for everybody. There are gradations. There are people in our lives that we may love and care about who went some way down that path, but not in an unforgivable way. And Mm -hmm. maybe we'll be able to mend those fences. And I'm glad to see that when it happens. 
I can say that for myself personally, between the very big philosophical change of mind, when I when I broke with my mother, I didn't just break with my mother, I broke with my with my left liberalism. I'm not a progressive or a leftist anymore. I'm much more conservative than I ever thought I would be, although I will not style myself a capital C anything or a capital L anything. Mm. I think that's a trap. I not only refused to put up with the abuse at home, but I realized that I was in the same abusive relationship with the left-leaning Democratic Party that I'd been a part of my entire adult life, and I said no to them too. I lost, and I'm not the only one, this is a common story, I lost more than 95% of, of my loved ones, my associates, my colleagues. I lost 30-year friendships because I discovered that I don't trust these people and I don't respect them. As sad as that is, they didn't want me in their life. And you know what? I don't want them in my life either because they are not who I thought they were. And I don't care. This is me. I'm just talking for me. I don't care how long we've known each other. I don't care what our kin relationship is. If you are untrustworthy and if you would call the authorities to snitch that I didn't get vaccinated or da 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 da. And I, yes, I am saying I absolutely believe that these people I considered loved ones would have done so had they had the opportunity. You're done. You are dead to me. We have no relationship. We are strangers and we will remain that way. I will not tolerate that low quality of character in my life. And that's the difficulty. I think we need to, to reclaim the agency of ourselves, the agency of the individual, because again, we've been groomed that it's not about the strength of us as an individual, but we need to conform with this collective ideal. And of course, yeah. Once you've conformed with that collective ideal, all of these personality disorders like to find their way to the top, you know, and get to the top of that because that gives them a group of people to control. And, and you see that so much, particularly in whether it be from a cult of weirdness all the way through to little thiefdoms that are created within a public service or a corporate environment. They, or a hobby group. Yeah, uh, <laughs> oh, let's just not unpick that thread, <laughs> shall we? Uh, we'll be here all day, Josh, if we unpick that one. And it is something that is is quite concerning. But let's give some people some hope. And I think you started with it with with no. I hundred percent agree with that. And it is something that I have started doing a lot more because I've always been a person who has been very positive and enabler. How do I build people up? How do I lift them and do things? And I have been like you in recent years. I've had people who I believe were very close and dear to me do things that have really broken my heart. And I've actually had to harden my heart a little bit, yes. which goes against my nature to do that. But at the same token, as the adage goes, one door closes, another always opens. And you rediscover new people and new ideas and you're able to say, okay, well, how do I A, strengthen me as the individual? And then it's ripples in a pond. How do I take that out? So this job for me now is a ripple in that pond. Yes. So it is a, a way for me to allow conversations like this to get out to the wider world because our mainstream won't allow these conversations to happen anywhere else. You have created Disaffected, I'm, I'm sure, for very much the same reasons. What are some of the reactions that your Disaffected podcast listeners are giving from you? What are some of the positives that you're getting from that line of work? A lot, a lot. And it, and it does me a world of good. Yeah. Um, well, it wasn't my idea. It was my friend Kevin, uh, who's the other half of the show, uh, the behind the scenes guy, it was his idea for us to do a talk show. Uh, it was not something I'd ever considered. But obviously, the idea took off. You know, when I decided to jump in and say, yes, let's do this, what I wanted to do was I wanted to connect for people um, the concept of family and systemic interpersonal abuse and our political and social lives as well. I also have a particular interest in helping people who have experiences of child abuse and family abuse. I would like to help people in any way that I can, hopefully to get to places and see things a little bit more clearly and maybe a little more quickly than I did. But also, I think this is, I'm not saying that I have the answers and, and you know, that everything I say is right, but the kinds of conversations that like that you and I are having right now, that the topics I try to bring up on the show, I think these are actually desperately important for our society. What I get, I get a lot of countless, really countless people who say, oh my God, I thought I was the only one. Are you my long lost brother? 
the story you just told was verbatim what my dad did or verbatim what my abusive uh, first wife did. Or So people are making these connections. They're seeing, as I did when I learned what cluster B personality disorders were in the beginning of the rupture with my mother, all of a sudden, an entire life of horrible experiences that made no sense to me that I was just, well, my mother's, my mother is uniquely crazy in this particular way. And it doesn't make any sense. All these experiences started to go. It was like a sorting machine. Ka-chung, 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 ka-chung. Suddenly there was a taxonomy. It did make sense, right? It could be explained. And it wasn't just me. That's very gratifying. So in terms of giving people hope, I think the other thing, aside from saying no, on the positive side, we have to tell the truth much more consistently and in many more domains than we are comfortable telling the truth right now. What does that mean specifically? I think it means being willing to stand up when when some idea is mooted by the mainstream press, by the media, by influencers, by your favorite politician. I'll, I'll just give an example. Um, the lunatic, incorrect idea that has taken hold of the American mind is that Black people in the 21st century are just as oppressed as they were before the Civil Rights Act and worse. It's lunatic. Mm. That's not an opinion. It just is. It is so far removed from reality. There's nothing real about that at all in any way. But then you've got people like San Francisco who are looking at paying reparations to ancestors. Not just San Francisco, the entire state of California. Oh, it's insanity. Uh, I just covered this on the show last week. It's infecting what we call the heartland, which is the, the geographic middle of our country, the Midwest, where there's a lot of farm, generally more conservative farming type. I believe it was in Illinois. It might have been Indiana. I mixed them up. A city right there, smack dab in the middle of, of farmland in the middle of the country, has already begun paying Black residents of the city thousands of dollars in reparations. Last year, they gave hundreds of Black people, only Black people, $25,000 US dollars for a down payment on a house simply for having been Black. This is not fringe shit anymore, folks. It ain't going to stay in California. It ain't going to stay in San Francisco. It has already metastasized. Using that as an example, I know it's scary, but you got to do it. When somebody is sitting around at the dinner table at a restaurant with 15 of you and starts talking about, well, we all know that systemic racism is harming Black people and causing extraordinary suicide and deprivation of Black women, you have to stand up and say, that's not true. That is not true. Yes, it's socially uncomfortable. Yes, listeners, you are going to lose friends. You are going to be ejected from some of your hobby groups. Accept it. Start Mm -hmm. accepting it right now today. If you are not willing to accept that, we have nothing to talk about. You can't help. Mm -hmm. There are consequences, but we need to tell the truth because these mythological narratives, these lies, these exaggerations that have captured our thoughts and our emotions, these are magical spells. And I mean that much closer to literally than people would think. Magic is real. Magic is manipulation. It is wordplay. It is substituting meanings. It is smuggling in assumptions. It is putting masks, linguistic masks, and other kinds of masks over things to smuggle poison or self-centered behavior in under a cover of selflessness. We are actually... Take a look at any fairy tale that talks about an entire town that was under an enchantment and fell asleep for a hundred years until the knight on the horse came in or the princess woke up or whatever this is. We are under an enchantment. Witchcraft and magic is wordplay and it works. We have had a spell cast on us. The only way to break the spell is to recognize that it is in fact a spell. And to speak against the spell, to say no, or to say the spell is a lie. And to the greatest extent that we can, we must be courageous enough to do this in public. I'm asking people to risk, consciously take risk, put your social capital in a precarious position, be willing to lose something. I can't make that decision about how much you're able to lose. I absolutely understand that people have children to feed and, and, 
all sorts of tensions that that make it hard for us to move, I know. But on the other hand, I was drummed out of a 20-year career by a woke mob that came from within my field and within my organization. My friends did this, right? The enemy is inside. We're sleeping with the enemy. I've lost almost all my friends and family that I used to have. I've lost my job. I'm unemployable in the nonprofit sector in the United States now as a result of my being outspoken. I'm not being a victim. I have suffered losses. I know that it's scary. I am less willing to listen to excuses than I used to be. Find some way, and it's a ramp. You have to start with the small first step. I understand you can't jump to And not everybody is going to be as outspoken as maybe you are, Maria, or as I am. Start small, but keep going. That's our only hope. It's interesting you say that. So I have spoken, actually, probably not on this platform, but certainly in uh, another platform that both you and I have been on. And I've talked about cancellation. And I know I've spoken to people about exactly what you've just said. And they've said to me, but Maria, I can't. I can't. Yes, okay. can. I'll share. I'll share this with you, but I can't say it out. And and I get it. I understand it because it's the fear that has been instilled of what will happen to you if you are an in inverted commas cancelled. Now, coming from somebody who has been cancelled, it's not very nice at the time, as you just said. It is. It's, it's horrible. It's bloody awful. And I do not want to go through that again. And I've. I've got the police file and I've got the, and all the things there to to prove it. But you know what? Once you've come out the other side, what I didn't realize, and this is the one thing that no one actually tells you, is once you've come out the other side of that and the dust is settled and you've re reassessed the lay of the land and where people around you sit and you reevaluate relationships in this new environment, you think, well, I'm still here. I'm still alive. And what I didn't realize was, is actually that cancellation event for me in 2020 has set me free. Yes. Yes. We are free. We are free. Freedom is scary. Freedom is very scary. I fought against freedom in the aftermath of my rupture with my mother, which was the beginning of my change of political mind as well. I fought with my therapist over this. I said, I can't, I'm afraid. Um, I don't want that much freedom. Isn't, you know, isn't it okay for me to want some security and stability? And of course, yes, it's okay for me to want that, but I wanted unrealistic things. Yes, it's a loss, but those of us who've been through it, we find that we gain things too. We, we gain new friends. And surprisingly, we find that we end up being friends with people that maybe 10 years ago, we would have said, that's not the kind of person I'd ever go to dinner with, right? New opportunities open up. I'm still financially precarious. I lost my job six, seven months ago, and I still haven't replaced all the income. Yeah. I I sit up at night sometimes worrying about money. You bet. But new opportunities are coming all the time. You will survive and you will be able to sleep more soundly at night and you will be able to live with yourself. You can look at yourself in the mirror and say, I told the truth. Absolutely. Well, I think on that note, this is Josh Slocum. Disaffected is the podcast. Where can people find it if they want to tune in? Thank you. Yes, um, we put out our show as uh, a live premiere um, with live chat. It's it's actually pre-recorded every Sunday night at 9 p.m. U.S. Eastern Time uh, on YouTube. Uh, It's also on Rumble. So look for the Disaffected Podcast on Rumble or on YouTube. Also on uh, every, we we put the audio on your podcast app. So any any podcast catcher you have, look for Disaffected, Apple, Spotify, you know, blah, blah, blah. All that stuff is there. And we do audio only as well. That's not part of that TV style show that we do on Sunday. And we have a sub stack. And that's kind of the main portal for getting into it, go to disaffectedpod.substack.com. We put our announcements up there. And uh, and people yeah, would have we, the opportunity to su- support you financially from that Substack? Yes, absolutely. Uh, and we sure appreciate it. You know, it's it's been a labor of love, but but we, we, we'd like to 
we'd like to make some of our living from it too. So if you enjoy it and you think it's worthwhile in the world, we'd love to have your support. And if people do, you know, almost everything we put out, all of this content, video and audio is free. Everybody can watch it. On Substack, I do do some premium payers only articles to thank people who are, you know, are supporting the show. But most of what we put out is free for the world. But if you do want to support us, you get some perks. We've got a Discord server, a private chat server that's got more than 400 members in it who are all show supporters. We get contributions from people. A lot of the members there put up content that I end up putting up in the show. We do some backstage recording events so you know you can hear the podcast while it's being made. We'd, we'd love to. And Marie, thank you so much for having me on your show. Oh, absolutely appreciate it. And I really do hope you've tickled some courage muscles, Josh, because those courageous conversations and, and just, you know, challenge yourself, listeners, this week, do one one courageous thing or use no. There you go. Just once. Just, just once. start just once. And then <laughs> after you after you're okay with once, you can try twice. Excellent. Hey, look, more great content here to come with Counterculture. Thank you very much, Josh. Don't disappear. We've still got another great guest as well as, of course, Marty will be along with Media Matters here with Counterculture on Reality Check Radio. You're listening to Counterculture on RCR. Reality Check Radio.